Welcome to the Talent Empowerment Podcast, where we support your purpose and your purpose-driven transformation and share the stories of great CEOs, great founders, great entrepreneurs, and leaders of all backgrounds. So you can borrow their vision, their tools, and their tactics to lift up your organization, your teams, and your community. I am your host, Tom Finn. And on the show today, we have Mac McNeil. Mac, welcome to the show. Tom, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I'm excited about being here. Well, Mac, we are excited uh, about hearing your story and hearing the great things that you're doing in business and in literature. Um, and if you hadn't had a chance to meet Mac yet, let me just introduce you to this great human. He's an accomplished leader with a diverse background in military intelligence, business, and financial management. He joined the Army at 17 and quickly rose through the ranks to become a respected expert in psychological operations and human behavior, one of my favorite topics. He's held key positions at some prestigious financial institutions, including Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. And he's got a groundbreaking book that's about to hit the stores, My Great Aunt Edna, uh, The Golden Girl of Leadership. It's widely acclaimed as a roadmap for leaders to lead with excellence, do things the right way, take no shortcuts, and really become accountable. Uh, he's currently serving as the SVP uh, for the Community Reinvestment Fund. That's his current job. But he does a lot, so we're going to get to a lot of different components of Mac's life. I got to start with this one, Mac. That's a deep, rich history here. What are some of the choices you've made that uh, sort of make you who you are today? Man, loaded question. <laughs> I made some good choices and some bad choices, and they've all led me to where I am right now. But you know, uh, for the sake of the show, I think I'll, I'll focus on a couple of the good ones. The first one, uh, you know, it takes me back to my army days when I was seventeen. You talked a little bit about that, but. Um, learning about the spirit of excellence and operating within that, uh, you know, just tell a quick story. I was in Korea and I was putting up a talk, a tactical operations center. And one of my uh, sergeants just started yelling at me, you know, me and a couple of other privates. And I didn't understand why, you know, we were following directions, doing what we were supposed to do, um, you know, putting the, the talk up based on the instructions. Um, but later on, he had a coaching session with me and he taught me about the spirit of excellence and and that the spirit of excellence is how you do something. It's not what you're doing. You know, he was saying you guys are doing what we asked and you're following directions, but it's how you're doing it. And we were, you know, lacks of days of cold joking around, you know, just playing, having fun. Um, but I learned about the spirit of excellence very early and I decided that I would take that with me. And it has been with me all the way throughout, you know, my military career and my civilian career as well um, and helped me get to where I am today. And the other thing that I say, a decision that I made was actually listening to my mother, but I didn't do it early. So, you know, I want to be honest about that. But um, I was probably in my 30s and, you know, past my military career. And she kept saying, you should go into banking. And I was thinking, what the hell? You know, I'm not going into banking. That didn't even fit my persona at the time. Right. But she was absolutely correct. When I finished my MBA, I was recruited by J.P. Morgan Chase and ended up going into banking and it's projected me to where I am right now. So, you know, listening to my mother is probably the, the other best decision I've made. Yeah, well, we should all listen to our mothers. Uh, that's a public service announcement for all the moms out there. <laughs> all the moms out there. Yeah, it's not even Mother's Day. <laughs> you got to listen to your mom. Certainly, certainly from time to time. Uh, it may take you till you're 30 to get there, but that's, that's okay too. So you start in the military and then mom gets you in to banking. Was that always the goal? Did you always want to go in the military and then, and then do something in the business world? 
Well, the military, yes. Banking in the business world was not a goal. But the military, you know, my father was in the army. I grew up in it. You know, I went to high school and elementary school in Germany. So, you know, I was already ingrained into the military culture. Um, so when I was 16 years old, I joined my mom signed for me, but I couldn't go in until I was 17 right after high school and went right in. So that was a goal and a plan. Um, initially I thought it was going to be a career, you know, but I did four years, four exciting years and decided to, you know, try something else, do something different. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I tried several different things. I was in sales and I worked at a hospital and an out, outpatient, you know, got into some leadership roles in the retail. Um, in the business world, again, you know, uh, just going to school after the military and my mom's advice actually led me to where I am right now. But it wasn't it wasn't a plan all along. You know, it's funny. I have so many friends uh, that have been in the military uh, and come out of the military. Was that transition difficult for you uh, as it is for, me- for many of the folks that I know? Absolutely. It's difficult for everyone. And I don't care who you are. It- it's a difficult transition. It's just two different worlds. Um, but for me, I had a couple of extra, uh, pieces there that made it even more difficult for me. One, I was in military intelligence and then I ended up in the special operations command. You know, that wasn't a plan, but you know, I did, uh, that for a couple of years and it's completely different from anything in the civilian world, unless you're talking about a GS level, you know, uh, something that's, that's parallel to it. And, and I was only 21 when I got out. Um, so you know, here I am with the top secret clearance, 21 year old blackmail. And I go back to Memphis, Tennessee. And again, no one in Memphis is used to a 21 year old blackmail with those kind of credentials and they don't understand how to place you. And so I had trouble, you know, just getting into the the work world. You know, they, they look at you like, you know, deer in the headlights, like, what, what are you talking about? Is this an actual resume? Did you make this up? Um, so that was a, a difficult transition for me. And I think it took me about four years to actually get some some foot and some grounding under me uh, when I when I went back to school and just took a different approach, completely different approach. And uh, that helped me when I got grounded back into to college. Yeah, I think this is a really important story because for those of you that are listening out there, we all go through different components of our life and different challenges based on who we are and where we come from and where we live and what our languages are, et cetera. And this is, this is a pretty big one, right? Go, coming out of the military and then with all that clearance and all of that sophistication, right? And you're feeling, I would imagine you're feeling confident. I was. You know, you know for lack of a better term, you're Billy Badass yeah. coming out of this thing, right? And, uh, and now people are looking at you like you're a regular Joe, and that's an adjustment in and of itself. Extremely, yeah. And, and I think that's a message for entrepreneurs out there. You got to constantly reinvent and reestablish yourself, right? Because it, it didn't matter after that. Um, now, I would imagine that you've taken all those skills and that's what's made you so successful. It's a part of who you are, but maybe it wasn't seen by others when you were 22 or 23. Yeah, no, that was good. And I want to go back to your statement about entrepreneurship and just reinventing yourself. You know, not only did I have to do that coming out of the military, but even when I got into banking, you know, I, I found myself having to do that as well throughout my career. You know, you do certain things or different things within banking and you, you constantly evolve and reinvent yourself. And if you don't do that, uh, I don't care if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you're trying to climb that corporate ladder or whatever it is. If you don't constantly evolve, you will die. It's the point of life. It's the point of reality. Like we're designed to evolve. And if you're not evolving, whatever you're doing will die.
So I know in your background, you've got this interest in human behavior. So where, where did that come from? Yeah, so the interest was always there, just curious. When I was in the military, again, I was in military intelligence, but when I went to Fort Bragg, I ended up in psychological operations in the Special Operations Command. And, you know, that's all about the study of human behavior. And the, the point of that unit is to figure out ways to end war faster than conventional warfare. And so to do that, you have to know your enemy inside and out, and you have to use everything you know about that individual or that entity um, to help you do that. And so that's where it really started as a science for me to, to think through that, but I've carried it through into leadership as well. And, and it's helped me and, you know, individual leadership. And then I've led, led large teams as well, but understanding the psychological components of, you know, who I'm dealing with has helped me progress faster or influence faster. And that, that really came from the military. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I want to sit in front of you, Matt, because I feel like you're going to psychoanalyze me and you're going to uh, you know, be able to know everything I'm thinking right away. No, it really only happens nowadays when I drink. Seriously, the more I drink, I, I can't stop it. It just happens. I start reading people and I hate it. Oh, man, that's, that's too funny. So, so when you think about that transition and you're in the work world, were, were there some people that trained and influenced you along the way that that gave you some of the confidence to kind of keep pushing forward? Oh, absolutely, man. And I write about this in the, in the book, but three people in particular, two were women and one was a male. I'm trying to, they were all at JP Morgan Chase. I had to think about that, but absolutely both in helping me continue to move forward, but also understanding what evolution needed to occur at what point in time. Like, you know, what needed to happen with me and my particular role to get to that next level. Um, they absolutely helped me and I give them credit for it. I couldn't have done it without them. Um, you know, I'll mention their names right now. Uh, you know, Barb Tripp, Maria Garcia um, and Pablo Sanchez. Absolutely instrumental in, in me getting to where I am right now. Yeah. Shout out to Barb, Maria and Pablo. Well done, my friends. Yeah. A lot of love being thrown around there. I Look, nobody gets to where they want to get to in a corporate environment without having some friends like that, that can help educate you on the politics, perhaps the organizational structure, who the power players are. And if you're in big corporate uh, USA or big corporate global, you understand that. For those entrepreneurs that have never been in that environment, they might not get it. So help, help us understand what that looks and feels like when these three people help you. What, is that, what are they actually talking you through? Yeah. So first of all, it was observation. I'll start with there. It was me observing them because I like their person. I like their leadership style. I like, you know, their career and success stories. And it's the same thing in entrepreneurship. You know, you can look to people that you want to emulate and you, you, you study them a little bit. Right. But then I have the opportunity to get to know them on an individual personal level. And that's where the impact actually happens, where you truly get to know someone. And it's not that facade. You know, everybody has some facade, some kind of face they're putting on. But when you actually get to know them intimately, that private time that's away from that corporate life and know their pains and their struggles, they, they find out the same about you. And then they start sharing the real deal. Like, you know, this is really what you have to do because you're going to you're going to experience this. That's what's helped me with all three of them that I can think about. I can think about certain instances when that moment happened where, you know, it, we weren't friends and, and 
And I have this thing about being friends with your employees or your team. It's very dangerous. So I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were very friendly to the point where they let me in to their personal lives. Uh, and, and then they, they helped me, you know, by sharing their story and then giving me bits of advice. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to double click on this one, bro. I mean, you just <laughs> said, I have this thing uh, about being friends with people I work with, essentially, is what you said. And uh, studies would say that those with a best friend at work typically have a longer tenure within an organization. So tell me where your philosophy comes from and, and what has you uh, with your guard up a little bit. No, I, I agree with that statement that it does help with tenure when you have a, a friend at work. The problem is when that friend becomes your boss or is your boss. Yeah. Because um, what I just talked about, those very direct conversations that need to happen. Like when you tell someone truthfully, you know, what's going to help them, sometimes it's not always positive. And the words are received differently from a friend. They really are. And you, you can say the exact same thing to someone else that's on your team that's not your friend, and they're going to receive that coaching differently and actually utilize it to make themselves better. Your friend a lot of times takes that in because you have that relationship with them and it hits them in their soul and they're not necessarily understanding what they need to correct to move forward or what gave you that impression about them. And so I have this thing about being friends. And what I, what I mean by being friends, I mean, it's those intimate relationships. You take vacations together, you know, you know, their kids, their kids know you, those kind of situations, but friendly like I'm friendly with thousands, you know, I've, I've led thousands of people and I've had several happy hours and fun times and jokes and laughs in the office. And that's, you know, very friendly. And I like to have fun at work, but, you know, don't invite me to your kid's birthday party because I'm not coming uh, because I'm your <laughs> boss. And when we cross that line, now there's a barrier that's created, not necessarily between me to you, but there's a barrier that's created that my words will not have the same impact now. Yeah, I follow you. Uh, and I remember a situation, it was probably a decade ago, and I had just had uh, my first child, not me personally, but you get the idea. And one of the guys on my team who was an absolute rock star and a great human came to me and said, hey, bud, do you know that you're a total train wreck? Like, you need to get some sleep. And you're not making any sense on these calls and we can tell you're exhausted and you know, I just, you need to hear it from me. And he was a, a friend, right? And, uh, y'all never forget that, uh, shout out to, uh, to Josh Miller, um, who was uh, a great friend at that moment who said to me, you got to get it together because you know, you're not sleeping right through the night and it's it's showing up at work uh for everybody to see. So I appreciate that. I always like when people give me that feedback, right? Cuz you sometimes you just don't know, Mac. Yeah, it's true. And you got to have those great people in your life that uh that point you in the right the right direction. So so you mentioned it just just quickly there and you said in my book I talk about. So talk to me about um your book and let's sort of unpack the reasons as to why you wrote it. So um, backtrack to 2014. So I was uh, an executive in Southern California, as a matter of fact, for Bank of America. And um, someone asked me and I hadn't really thought about it before, but I was successful at Chase and I you know, started to have some success at B of A. And they said, what makes you a successful leader? And, you know, I thought about it for, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds. And I said, excellence, doing things the right way, no shortcuts and accountability. And someone goes, hey, that spells Edna. 
And I said, yeah, I have a great Aunt Edna. You know, it was kind of a funny thing at the moment. Um, but what happened was my team and I had 60 financial centers under me at the time. They they took this thing and they personified it. And so I would go into the, the financial centers um, visits and there'd be pictures of my great Aunt Edna in the break room. And they'd have the acronym there. Excellence, doing things the right way, no shortcuts and accountability. And it became the culture and how all of the leaders led, you know, uh, you know, they talked to their employees. Hey, you know, Aunt Edna would say that you're supposed to be doing this or, or this and that. And it became a thing. And it followed me, um, you know, from Bank of America to Synchrony and now to the Community Reinvestment Fund. Um, and someone suggested I start a newsletter and I did started the newsletter uh, and it turned into this book. And, you know, I invited other leaders to, to participate and, you know, tell some stories and and it became uh, a platform now, you know, um, I want to go into all the great detail uh, right here on this show. But, you know, it, it, you know, there's podcasts, there's newsletters, there's, there's all kind of things with my great on Edna. And so the book is really setting the, the foundation of what's to come with this platform and, and getting it out to the world. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking the time to write it and coming up with such a fun phrase, right? I mean, that's it sticks. My great aunt Edna, we get it, um, and and it's E D N A for those of you uh, listening. So let, let's go through this just kind of one at a time. Give us give us just a couple bullet points under each because I think that'll help all the listeners kind of frame this up so that they can take something away from from this podcast today. Which is let's start with excellence. What does that actually mean to you? Yeah. So the first thing is excellence is not perfection and people confuse it um, very quickly. They, they think that you're talking about perfection and it's not. It's in the how. Again, going back to my army days, you know, the spirit of excellence is in the how you approach things and how you do things. And if you do that consistently, you know, your outcomes are typically better when they are better than if you hadn't approached it with the spirit of excellence. And the second piece is that, you know, when you do start with the spirit of excellence, expect opposition. Um, that's, you know, it is a spirit. And so every spirit has an opposition. It has an opposite. Uh, uh, and so when you when you in environments where that hasn't existed before and you start to create that spirit of excellence, the team is starting to get it. Expect opposition because it will come. Um, and then that's just leadership uh, preparation. You know, it's coming. Um, and then around no shortcuts. Uh, it, it sounds self-explanatory. But there's several ways. And, and again, remember, this is really focused on leadership, but there's several ways that leaders can take shortcuts or attempt to take shortcuts um, in leading their teams. And one way is trying to follow a blueprint that someone else laid before you got there. You know, there was a blueprint. It worked. And so the leader just tries to step in. Hey, we'll do it the same way. And then they expect the same results. You don't get the same results and you don't understand why. It's because that blueprint wasn't written for you. And so there aren't any shortcuts to success. Like you have to do it yourself. Take the long route, um, the good, the bad and the ugly. And all of those things, very similar to the first question you asked me um, about, you know, my decisions. All of those things help you get to where you want to go. Ultimately, doing things the right way, uh, you know, that's. You know, once something has been prescribed and it's kind of tied into no shortcuts as well, but uh, something has been pre prescribed as the way to do things, then th that's the way that we're doing it. But while we're doing it, we're also doing it with the spirit of excellence, looking for ways to constantly improve. Right. Because doing things the right way is not always doing the right things. Doing the right things changes. And sometimes we need to do something else, but we always approach it with doing the right way. And then the last piece of my great on Edna is accountability and accountability 
Um, you know, it's really like a, a three-way street. It's not a two-way street. You know, there's personal accountability, holding yourself accountable. There's accountability from leader to team and then team to leader. Like, uh, you know, the leader understanding that they're also going to be held accountable uh, for the things that they say or the tone that they set or the culture that they say they're operating in. You know, all of this is inclusive of uh, on Edna. And what I've noticed, you know, you know, when I've rolled this out into multiple teams is that when the team actually gets it, it becomes a living thing where the team, the team will drive it. The leader won't have to drive it. Um, I've seen it so many times. Yeah, and that's what they say in sports too, right? About great teams that the head coach is, is really just there to help call a couple of plays, but the team, the leaders on the team within the, the group setting are the ones setting the tone, right? We would use that, uh, in sports, uh, as we talk about this. I think, you know, as we think about EDNA, I mean, the thing that jumps off the page to me is accountability because I always start with the end in mind. And accountability for me, when you're in any team or organization, or my goodness, just in your family setting or, or even with some, some friends that you're accountable for your own behaviors, you're accountable for how you interact with people. You said it in a beautiful way. That leader is accountable for their behavior too. And sometimes they forget that. Yes. Yes, they do. So how do you, how do you talk to a leader that isn't holding themselves accountable? What do you, what do you actually say so you don't get fired? <laughs> I like the last point there. So you don't get fired because there are some things I probably would say uh, if I didn't have that hanging over my head. But really, I, I go back to setting expectations. So I do this with every single team every single year. And I usually do it in January. But we have an expectations meeting and I'll, I'll have it as a team. And we all talk about expectations and I give the team the opportunity to question the expectations, because again, we need to be on the same page. Right. And so as a team, and then the one-on-one -on -one conversations around expectations, I meet with every single one of the leaders that work for me and we talk, you know, what are the expectations, you know, that you have of me? And then I give them my expectations as well. And so when we get to that point of accountability, I take them back to that conversation. Um, and ironically, I just had to do this last week with one of my leaders, but I had to take this leader back to the conversation we had and remind them of what they said to me around, you know, some things that they said they were going to do. And then they weren't actually holding themselves accountable, but I let them know that I'm absolutely holding you accountable. And these are the things that we need to change. But it has to go back to that expectations conversation, because if you don't have expectations, you really don't have anything to be held accountable to. Um, you know, it's personal expectations, you know, just to make it personal about your own life. If you say you're going to work out, you know, for three months, um, and you're not working out for three months. Why are you upset with yourself after three months? It's because you set an expectation for yourself that you didn't keep. So it goes back to the expectation. Yeah. I, uh, talked to a guy, uh, who's an athletics director at a, a major university. And he said that managing teams is all about expectation management, that the entire process is built on having those conversations up front. Just like you said, Mac, because having those conversations up front allows you to set the tone and, and get buy-in. It's a, it's a two-way conversation. It's, here's what I'm thinking. Do you agree? And, and once we're done with that conversation, we both agree that these are the expectations. Once that is put in place, as you said, it is so easy to hold people accountable because we agreed to what the expectations were. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. And coming back to it, 
in in terms of hey we both agreed to this and and you're not holding up your end of the bargain would be the same thing. I would imagine you would take that feedback pretty well if they came to you and said, "Hey Mac, we had these expectations and you're not holding up your end of the bargain." Well, they do. And and I appreciate it when they do. My team does that. I wouldn't say weekly, but probably at least monthly. Someone reminds me of something I either said or, you know, a, a team goal. Like they do that often, but that also helps me know that my great aunt Edna is, is taking root. Like they get it now. They're holding me accountable. And, uh, and, and they understand that when I hold them accountable, it's not anything personal. It's, it's what we said we need to do in that spirit of excellence. Yeah. I, I love the great aunt Edna, uh, model. And so the book is coming out soon. Yep. March 27th, March 27th. We're recording uh, a week ahead of that. Uh, so by the time this hits the airwaves, book will be available. Uh, for folks to uh, to go check it out, uh, buy it. I imagine it'll be available on some uh, some platforms that we're familiar with. Yeah, so Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Apple Books, Goodreads, so on and so forth. So pretty much everywhere books are available, and it's in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Okay, not in, not in cursive, not handwritten in cursive. No, though. I think I stopped writing in cursive in the fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I remember how. <laughs> uh, well, the people have a lot of options um, to go check out uh, my great aunt Edna. And if if I was thinking about a couple of takeaways for my team and I wanted to put something in play uh, this week and I wanted to do something different, how do I introduce this concept? I've never done it before. I've never used this framework and nobody's ready for it. What do I do to kind of just start that process with my team? Very, very, very good question. I think you're the first person to ask me this question. And I would say start out with the spirit of excellence. And, and that's the core of everything within my great on Edna. It's that spirit of excellence. It's that North Star that you point back to. Going back to the agreement, you know, first of all, everyone has to understand and agree on what that spirit is for that team. Like how, because again, it's talking about the how we do things. So what does that mean? You know, defining the how and whatever you're talking about. Um, so it could be uh, I'll use a report as an example, like we're doing a report. Right. So within the spirit of excellence, we want to make sure that the report is in a proper format. We want to make sure that we have absolutely no grammatical errors. So how do we you know, work to do that if someone's writing it who isn't a specialist in that? Uh, we want to make sure that all of the stakeholders that are going to be impacted are aware of this before it gets out. And so how do we make sure that those kind of things happen? So starting out with the spirit of excellence and getting that once you start with the spirit of excellence and it starts to seep into your team, like then you can start focusing on doing things the right way, no shortcuts and accountability. But it all starts with that spirit of excellence. Yeah, I I love the the starting point because it gives you a really easy entree into the conversation with the team and you don't have to get too cute with this. You can just say it as it is, right? You can be pretty matter of fact in your delivery. I would imagine. Is that the way you would approach it? Yeah. And, and I do. Um, but I also help with the, what I call the opposite or the counter spirit of excellence is mediocrity. And most people can point out what mediocrity is. They just haven't had the opportunity to do so. And so you start with that. Like, let's, let's start, let's talk about it as a team. Like, how have we been doing things with a mediocre spirit? And you allow them to, to speak. They'll tell you. 
like, hey, we don't do this well, or we just kind of, you know, take the back road for this and that. And then, okay, great. Now, how can we do this same task in the spirit of excellence? And your matter of fact, as you just said, like, just boom, you know, this is, this is what we need to do. Yeah, I like that acknowledging mediocrity in the workplace inspires a conversation because it just feels like to me, certainly in large organizations that I've worked in, there's a lot of that. Yes. There's a lot of mediocrity. There's a lot of people collecting a paycheck, biding time, stacking 401ks so that at some point they can retire and live the life they always wanted to live, which personally, and for those that listen to this show often, that's not the way I roll. Um, you know, purpose-driven lives and, and finding your purpose and driving towards that is what makes life fun. Uh, so shout out to those of you that are sitting in jobs you hate. Please don't do that anymore. Uh, go work for Mac for, for goodness sake, if you, if you need to. <laughs> yeah. Or start your own thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and you're so right. Uh, I always say that there are millions of people who go home every day and mediocrity doesn't bother them at all. They sleep well at night. Um, and that's when I talked about the opposition, those are the ones that when the spirit of excellence shows up, that opposition will show up because you're messing up their comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and, and some people will step up and say, you know what? You're right. I was just waiting for a leader like this to give me a little bit of a kick. And other people will dig their heels in and fight you and speak badly about you and tell you it's not going to work and speak behind your back. That is the risk when you start to play this game, right? Have you read my book already? Because I, I have think not read reading. your book yet. Uh, I might have lived parts of it. <laughs> I think that's what it is, man. Yeah, right. So, so talk to me about that, right? Because that's the fear that a leader will have by saying, okay, Mac, I get it. Conceptually, we got to stop the mediocrity in my organization. I'm a division leader, VP, director, run a region, run a team, whatever. And I start using this type of language I'm going to fire some people up. They're going to be people throwing some darts my way as well. So how do you how do you mitigate that politically? Yeah. So one, again, going back to expecting it to happen. So you have to expect that it's going to happen as soon as you start to create the spirit of excellence in your environment. And we're talking about corporate environment. It doesn't matter what environment we're talking about right now. It's always the same. But um, how do you mitigate that is that you plan on losing people up front. Like if you're going to instill migrate on Edna into your organization, whatever it is, your personal life, um, you're going to lose and you're going to gain. That's with anything in life, you know, especially when we're talking about entrepreneurship. Right. You're going to lose something and you're going to gain something. Uh, the important thing is that you gain more than you lose. Right. So you're going to lose uh, some knowledge base. Uh, and, and it happens in organizations where someone doesn't agree with you know, what's being done now versus what used to be done. And they leave and they're taking a little bit of knowledge with them. But what you bring in and you start to hire and look for that spirit of excellence and the people that you bring into the organization that fit that culture. And what you will realize is that that team goes far beyond what you even imagine. And I've experienced that so many times. I have so many great stories to tell where I, I really get teared up when I think about the teams and what they accomplished because it's so far beyond what I planned for them to do, but it's because I lost some and I gained a whole lot. And what we gained took us further than anything we could have done previously. Yeah. Tell us more about that, Mac. 
Um, yeah, I'm trying to say it without, without calling out <laughs> a few names here, but, um, you know, when I was with, uh, an organization, I'll just, just tell it, uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, coming into the situation where I'm the new leader, you know, the other leaders, the branch managers had been there for a while. Um, the bankers had been there for a while and some of them 20 plus years. And this isn't about tenure at all, but you know, I had that situation. And it was a new build district. And so we're piecing this thing together to begin with. You know, the organization is growing and, and I'm opening new branches. And uh, I, I lost some leaders that, again, had a lot of institutional knowledge that that they took with them. And of course, some of the team that uh, that works for them, you know, they leave as well. And I started to hire and um, I didn't hire for banking. And that's historically what we had done. We went and we looked for other bankers. I started to hire for personality and and grit. And it's exactly what you're talking about. People that had purpose. You know, I'd had people that would sit in front of me during an interview process and tell me, you know, hey, you know, I don't have any banking experience, but, you know, I, I really want to show my child, you know, something different in life. And I'm a single mother and that I could actually do this. And, you know, I heard those kind of stories and I'm like, that's who I want. I need that. Right. I can teach you banking, but you have the grit, you have the spirit of excellence and you have a purpose. Right. There's a reason why you want to do it. And we started to create this team and it was in uh, the Temecula area. And we created a team. It, it was so funny when I think about it, man. I hired a UFC guy, a guy who was a UFC fighter who had no banking experience at all. And during the interview, his ears were swollen. Uh, you know, he had just had a fight like the previous night or something like that. It's hilarious. And I brought him on. We created a team that was so good that the team finished as national performance out of, I don't remember even how many, you know, districts we had we were competing against, but I ended up going on a trip to the Bahamas, um, with a couple of the managers and the leaders. Some of the bankers were either number one in California, number one in the nation. And it was that spirit of excellence that I'm talking about and hiring and looking for that versus looking for that institutional knowledge. I lost some of that, but what I gained was so much more. And that team, we still talk. Um, we're still very, you know, I'm friends with them now because I'm not their boss, <laughs> but you know, we, it, it's a, it was a time that was special for all of us that we still talk about. You know, it was that magic, you know, you kind of think about like golden state, you know, their first run, you know, in basketball, you know, that magical moment, that's what it felt like. And it was a, it was a team of individuals who normally wouldn't be sitting in JP Morgan chase, but because I was their boss, they were. Yeah, look, there is a massive story behind this. And you're you're just peeling back a couple layers of the onion. For for those of you thinking about this and saying, did he really hire a UFC fighter to be in banking? The answer is yes. He he sure as heck did. And here's why. The reason why is exactly what Max said. You're looking for people that play the game at a high level. You can teach them everything else, but if they're good people and they're purpose driven. And, and they're focused on excellence. You can teach them the nuts and bolts. That's the easy part. We can all learn things. And if they're willing to learn, right? If they're learners, if they're lifelong learners, they're going to pick it up so fast. And the glue that Mac just explained is now you have the culture. You have the core team culture all rowing in the same direction. So that loss of knowledge, the new people just find smarter and better ways to do it. They don't do it the old way because they don't know the old way. They find a better way to do it. And 
that culture breeds success and it breeds promotion for people. And those people go on to do the same thing that Mac just did for other teams where they're the Mac, right? And they're hiring different people from different backgrounds, different cultures, languages, single moms, UFC fighters, doesn't matter. Hire the right people is what I heard you say. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Look, I, I got to tell you, I can't wait to get my, my hands on this book. It sounds fantastic. And the principles uh, that you are talking through are all the right things to be thinking about as business leaders. So I encourage everybody to go out, check it out. We'll put everything in the show notes so that you can check out Mac uh, as well. Mac, people are going to want to get in touch with you and check you out and follow you and, and get engaged. How, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So um, first of all, you can reach me via email at info at mygreataunteedna.com. Um, and as far as social media is concerned, there's LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and it's all my great aunt Edna. So you can find me there. Um, and again, there's a YouTube show. Uh, that's my great aunt Edna as well. Uh, so just Google my great aunt Edna and you'll see my face in multiple ways, podcasts, all of that. Oh, I love it, man. Um, I love the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to write this book, taking the time to really think through what the steps are for people and and I think what I'm hearing is we want to replicate this in lots of different organizations so that we're all starting to behave in this manner. Yes, sir. That's the idea, you know, to get this leadership platform out. And, and really, I want people to think. I want leaders to think, um, stop and think. That's the point of this book. You know, it's not a how-to guide uh, because it's going to be different for everyone. And, you know, it's not a three-step, five-step. There, there are no steps. But I really want leaders to stop and think. And that's typically what happens uh, from the newsletters that I write, you know, leaders respond to me like, wow, you know, I hadn't stopped to think about it this way, but I have to, you know, rethink my approach to things. And that's what I really want. Yeah, beautifully said, Mac. And I can't thank you enough for joining the Talent Empowerment Podcast to share your story with, uh, with all the listeners. Appreciate you. No, thank you, Tom. I appreciate you having me, man. And thank you for joining the Talent Empowerment Podcast, my friends. I hope you transform your business by placing humans at the center, leveraging technology at speed, and enabling innovation at scale. Check out the new book by Mac McNeil. It's coming out soon, my great aunt Edna, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everybody.